When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello listeners, we at the Ultra Hope Girls would like to give a brief content warning for the episode that you are about to hear. In this episode, we do talk about themes including suicide, childhood abuse, including sexual abuse, and pedophilia. So if that is not going to be comfortable for you to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and join us next time. We will not have any hard feelings. Take care of yourselves. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ultra Hope Girls, a Danganronpa podcast. We are very excited because today we are diving into another chapter analysis for Ultra Despair Girls. Um, we're going to be talking about chapter four. Just a warning that this will contain spoilers through chapter four, Ultra Despair Girls. But we cannot wait to get started. And without further ado, I'm Maddie. I'm Marin. And I'm Caroline. And we're the Ultra Hope Girls. One, two, welcome. You're on the threshold of an amazing episode. Showtime. Hi, Legends. Uh, Welcome back to Ultra Hope Girls, named after Ultra Despair Girls, which is the game we're talking about today. That's right. This chapter, I remembered it having a lot more like references and things like that than it actually did um yeah like there was a lot more running around that is true and a lot of just like plot which is totally fine I feel like the the stakes are raised in this chapter it definitely like introduces a lot of new ideas whereas I feel like you know the first three we've kind of been seeing Kamaru in one character state and seeing like every the world in one character state and the entire thing is just like introducing the world to us whereas this is a little bit more like taking the form we've become familiar with and tugging the rug out from under us and, you know, giving us new ways to look at things. Uh, but it's within the universe. Like you said, it's less um, external references. So Right, yeah. right. I really like this chapter of the game. I mean, obviously we'll get into more details on why later. But um, yeah, in my opinion, this was a very, very, a very good chapter. Maybe I'm a little biased because Nagisa is my favorite um, warrior of hope. And this chapter is very, <laughs> very Nagisa centered. But yeah. I don't know, guys. It's no chapter two with Jotaro. I'm oh, just saying. Oh, but... yeah. <laughs> Miss that little man. <laughs> oh, little buddy. Yeah. Um, it is neat to, we, you know, we start like the chapter right off the bat, like Nagisa, you know, is kind of filling us in on his backstory and he's running around with us. Um, and we do get a little bit about more about the Warriors of Hope as a group, which I think is like basically the first time we've been told exactly like their origin story, like the Avengers, you know, they're like their origin story. Yeah. And we learn more about Junko and Ashima's role in their origin story. Yeah, I don't know how you all felt when we made, you know, when Nagisa told us the story of how he and the other kids were like pretty much going to jump off the roof of the school. And then Junko and Ashima came along and said, if you don't want your lives, give them to me. That was weird. I, that, I mean, it was very sad. It was very sad that kids were going to do that. But like, it's very, the, the even sadder thing is that that's like, becoming more of a thing in real life like suicide rates are like going up especially in younger populations and like kids and teenagers and it's really really awful and it's so sad I think a lot of people have it in their heads that like that's not something that can apply to kids or that that's not something that kids do but it can be and it's really really sad it also like this part with Junko like kind of quote saving them from that fate is it it really shows how when kids are so broken down they can be easily manipulated into like following a new ideology or you know because at that point like those core values are still being molded in our personalities and stuff and you know there's like things like I think most people can relate like things that I learned as a child that are still ingrained in me and I am an adult now. And so it just kind of shows 
how you know sometimes people do take advantage of that like junko does in this situation there's um a book in chapter three of ultra despair girls that you can pick up uh, as you're like running along and it's called the ghost that wants to die and i saved this note for this chapter because i was like oh like that's crazy because i i knew that this reference would come up but in chapter three monica calls jotaro taro and in the book it says Taro wanted to jump off the roof of the kindergarten, but someone came and told him to change the meaning of of living. Now he has to live as a ghost for like basically for someone else. And you know, <laughs> I I yeah. think that's a direct reference to these kids' lives and specifically Jotaro. But I think it was just kind of symbolic of saying like he has to live as a ghost because if you're living your life for someone else's purpose, for like you know, you're not yourself, that self of yours has has died. And so these kids who are living for Junko or now for Monica are like, I don't know, it's just so sad. And yeah, I that reminds me of a book I'm reading right now. It's called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. And it's by V.E. Schwab. And it's about this girl who sells her soul basically to some kind of like devil guy, we don't really know. And he uh, basically gives her internal life, but in exchange, no one who sees her ever remembers her. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's wild. Oh, my goodness. That's so sad. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it also reminds me a little bit of, I mean, I guess we're just kind of like going based on like, what would you sell your soul for? Things in fiction. But like, it also reminds me a little of like in Harry Potter when, um, the, if you like drank the unicorn blood you'd live forever but like you'd be cursed forever and your life would suck and I'm like why would anyone want that I don't know like to me that's like that doesn't seem like it would ever be worth it but I mean some people have motivations that or desires that we cannot always wrap our heads around if we're not them and I think like Junko Anishima I think is one of those people where if she could live forever, but just live in utter despair, she would want to. <laughs> she would drink the unicorn blood. Yeah, Nagisa was kind of like popping off in that conversation. He kept saying all these things that I was like writing down. Like I was like, oh man, you're going to want to remember that later. Yeah. But it was like, evil always has a small good to it. Justice always hurts someone. Like I was like, who are you? Like, <laughs> you, you're too young to to have to have known that. Like I... Oh, man. I think it directly points to, Maddie, what you were saying about, like, you know, some people's motivations, it's hard to understand. But, like, yeah. I think it also, I mean, like, we'll probably have to talk about this a little bit more also next chapter. But, like, what what are the forces that we have in play here? It's the Warriors of Hope and the adults. And, like, there's some weird stuff going on with the adults that is, like, happening right now. And, like, the only pure souls that we can trust are Kamaru and Toko in this like they are the ones who are in it for truly the greater good up to this point so I think also that is connected to that Nagisa quote. Um, I think we also see in this chapter a third party start to come in like it's not only just kids versus adults now because we learn from Monica that you know she she doesn't want the children's paradise, you know, her goal is completely separate to that. And so it's kind of interesting to see, like, like you said, like the adults are really doing some funky things and it's in their minds still adults versus children, but there's like a third party here that's causing even more chaos that, you know, the main groups don't even know about. You mean that third party being Junko, like the despair? Yeah, Junko and Monica, I guess. Yeah, uh, true. Yeah. True, because it's like the that conflict between like what's more important, the game or the paradise, you know? And yep. I think we see that to Monica, it's pretty clear that it's just it's the game. She wants to spread the, the killing and the despair. I had another quote from Nagisa that was kind of similar, like in a similar vein to the this really, really deep stuff about like justice and pure evil versus pure good and like how there's no such thing. Actually, Kamaru responds to that at one point and says, oh, but even if that's true, a dream that requires you to hurt someone, I think it's wrong. And um, Nagisa calls her naive for saying that. And I just thought that was so neat because, like, I agree with Nagisa in this case. And I also think it's interesting how he's the kid and she's the older person, theoretically, like the teenager. But he's showing more wisdom than she is in that case. But also he says later on, 
after Kamaru insists that like, oh, the kids shouldn't be killing all the adults just because their own parents were bad. Like, why would you take it out against all adults? Nagisa says, we are well aware that we're killing innocents. This is war. When you're burning the enemy's country to the ground, do you stop to spare the good people? I was like, oh my God, Nagisa. Like, <laughs> what are you like? 11 years old like why are you why are you saying these things but wow to go off of that like it, we even see like you know it, throughout history there's this sort of mob mentality that is created against the enemy even though like so back during the cold war this is like a thing like we you know we were like against russia and like obviously there were people in russia who were like really suffering and like not doing great and like good people who live in all these countries obviously and they're like there are bad people that live in America, you know, it goes both ways. So um, yeah, it reminds me of that and how sometimes one propaganda could be used to like demonize the other side on in both in all countries of the world. Yeah, and his robot, Nagisa's robot at the end is uh, called Hannibal X. And uh, it's thought of that that is a reference to Hannibal, the fictional character. And so I'll talk about that a little later. But there was also a uh, Carthaginian general, like from Carthage, who is named Hannibal. And he is considered one of the greatest military commanders of all time. But like his name back back in the days when he was actually alive would strike fear in people's hearts because he he didn't take hostages. He didn't think like, oh, this person's innocent. Like, I'll just stop. Like, and, and I think that is very closely aligned with Maddie, that quote that you just said. So like, while I think it's in reference to the Hannibal fictional character, I do think there's that double meaning of that military commander. Definitely. Yeah. Very, very interesting connection there. And I, I think it's just, it says it speaks a lot to Nagisa's like depth of wisdom and whatnot because Kamaru is out here with this like very idealized version of like oh like you should be able to fight for a dream without hurting anyone and just like do it right and do it perfectly whereas Nagisa's like hey like that's not how real life works you know like a lot of times when you're fighting for something there's going to be collateral damage and you can't avoid it you know it's just deep deep stuff from this what is he 12 year old boy and it's like there's like the whole stereotype about how like kids who've gone through trauma like grow up too fast and then they're like wise beyond their years like I don't know if you guys have seen the memes on like Twitter or whatever that it's like wow you're so like wise for your age or whatever and it's like thanks it's the trauma <laughs> like the memes like that I don't even know but like yeah it's a funny meme but it's also kind of sad that in some ways I think it's true <laughs> when Kamaru is saying all of those like very idealistic things he says two lines he says what should we have done to earn the privilege of a normal happy childhood you're asking those who have had their lives destroyed by adults to trust other adults and I like I had to stop playing because I, I just needed to sit with that for a second like it just hurts a little bit because like Kamaru's ideal it, it's nice but like I don't think that I don't know like obviously like we don't condone what they've done it's horrible it is horrendous but like it almost gives you that little insight into like evil is not all bad exactly what he said like you can see a glimmer of why even if it's horrible and they shouldn't have done it he's offering an explanation there and uh yeah I mean, that's why the best villain, I feel like I say this every podcast episode, but that's why the best villains are people where you understand where they're coming from as to why they're doing what they're doing is because you could almost see yourself becoming that. Yeah. Huge difference there between someone like Nagisa and someone like Junko or even Monica, I think. Right. Because he's in it because he just wants like to live a life where he doesn't have to worry about like adults traumatizing him. There's another, this is just a small moment, um, but I know we've talked about how like Nagisa, um, I think we've talked a little bit about how Nagisa might feel more remorse than some of the other kids as well. And maybe that's another maturity thing because he clearly has more of a like emotional intelligence and a self-awareness than the other kids. But um, there's a moment where they're looking at a, like a pile of bodies and Kamaru says like, you really don't feel anything looking at this? And Nagisa says, these people are demons, are enemies. And then Toko says, that's not what she asked. And I just thought that was a very interesting exchange because he didn't really answer the question. Like he, just, he didn't say, no, I feel nothing. I feel no remorse, blah, blah, blah. So um, I thought that little exchange was some, some evidence that he does in fact feel guilt. 
later when we're walking, we find a card. It's like the, all the uh, warriors of hope have little cards. I talked about Masaru's back in chapter one, but the card for Nagisa actually talks about how he feels guilt. Like he's like, I don't always feel 100% confident in what we're doing. And like, is that bad? Like, how do I get rid of that little part of me that questions? So yeah. I definitely hear what you're saying. Yeah. I was just going to say that this part of the story when like, you know, against all odds, the thing that moves the protagonist forward is like teaming up with the part of the antagonizing team. And that's like one of my favorite tropes in fiction. It is so good because it always brings about like the best things in the world. So I wanted to kind of talk about and just unpack a little bit of Nagisa's trauma, because this is a chapter where he comes out and he explains actually like what happened to him. You know, he talks about the like being forced to study and study and study and study and kind of being treated like a test subject um, by his parents and like literally being, you know, injected with drugs to keep him awake for days at a time to, you know, keep studying. And like that to me, in my opinion, like that, that's torture. Like that's pretty much just absolute torture. Like that's, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious as to what, if you guys had any, any thoughts on that. I think that Marin has said this before. I think that Nagisa's trauma is very relatable to a lot of people. Yeah. And also, I don't want to jump to the end, but I kind of like for a second, like at the end when he's like, oh, like I, I will, I'll show you, like I'm going to be like the better I, I, and all that stuff. Like I would just thought back to our Enneagram episode and I was like, you are a freaking type three, bro, because you are like trying to get love by your achievements and it's like so sad he is such a cookie cutter type three it is like yeah and so for those of you who may not have tuned into that episode that is the achiever who's somebody who uh gains who thinks that their love is is gained by their achievements yeah i know i marked him as a one but i think i'm on the three train now i think i agree with you (laughs) what's interesting to me about nagisa's trauma is for all of the other kids I think his presents a lot differently than the other kids we've seen. The goal for from Nagisa's parents was to make him like the smartest, to push him to the limits, to be the best. Whereas for the other kids, it was a complete disregard for what is quote unquote best. And so while this still is super traumatic, it, it's kind of an interesting take. I don't know. Like I, I always give shout outs to the Danganronpa creators, but I think that they really push the limits of what trauma is and how it's not always just like a lack of attention or like bad attention but sometimes like too much of trying to become smart like that that can be bad and yeah so I yeah Yeah. that's what I think very true and it also adds the layer on of like the parent sort of living through the child and like their the parent's achievement is through the child and it's like you know that responsibility is also trauma in a lot of ways it is you're so right it it is the it's very different it's like a different way to approach it but it yeah I think it's kind of interesting to think about the different kids traumas and how they might be taken in a metaphorical way to be like a critique on how society treats people like with Nagisa I think it's like a society puts so much academic pressure on young people to achieve to achieve to achieve it's especially a thing in Japan as well but I know in, in, you know as we know some places in the US are like that too and um Masaru I think is an example of how like our society is hyper masculine it values masculinity and literally will like beat the weakness out of male people and punish them for not being strong and then Kotoko I think exemplifies how society objectifies girls and women and like treats us that if we are getting unwanted attention, it's our fault or that like we need to dress in a certain way to like avoid that kind of thing or like, and then with Jotaro, um, I had a harder time kind of thinking of of his, what he might metaphorically represent, but I thought maybe he's like kind of an example of the extreme version of like, oh, children should be seen and not heard. Maybe Jotaro's parents didn't even want him to be seen. But I think in some ways that's kind of a metaphor for how some aspects of society just ignore children and ignore their needs in the same way that Jotaro's parents ignored him. I I don't know. I think it's interesting. If you look at the metaphorical implications, then I think it is relatable. At least some aspects of every kid's story is relatable. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Let's talk about how Nagito looks. 
He has so much on his face. And one of my like favorite pastimes when I play this game, this is a fun fact I don't think I've shared. I like to pause the game when there's like Japanese characters on the screen and I'll like go to Google Translate and draw them in to see like what what's being said around the game. So like when we're walking with Nagisa, we pass by this place called Hormone Alley. And like what's written on Nagito's face is stupid. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's oh funny. Oh my god. It's just Great so like <laughs> elementary school like bullies like draw like oh I'm going to draw stupid on your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he does not seem to care. Like I just I just think it's so iconic how Nagito just does not care. Yeah, the scene like it's kind of a plot dump. Like it just kind of tells you everything that the game hasn't told you so far in this one scene, which I think is so interesting because it's very different from what the past games have done, where they do the plot dump at the very end of the game. It's like, okay, plot dump here, and then, like, the rest, there is some development still, but it's a lot less of, like, that kind of thing, which I thought was kind of interesting. But I thought it was funny that Nagito was, like, using the secret Toko is keeping as, like, a threat to Kamaru when Toko was, like, not stopping her from leaving. She was, like, you know, I don't know. It just was, and, and Kamaru didn't fall for it, and I think that that's kind of the um, inciting situation that changes her character as we very clearly see throughout the rest of this chapter. I think it's like noticing that Toko was in those subtle ways, like standing by her and was actually her friend. I did, I did like get a little bit like, okay, like, yeah, I, all right guys. (laughs) Yeah. I honestly didn't understand why Kamaru was so like butthurt about the deal with Nagito because earlier on the phone call with Makoto, Toko was literally like, I will kill you if you try and leave. Like, I will murder you. And then Nagito's like, oh, yeah, she's going to, you know, use you for a trade with Byakuya. And Kamaru is shook. She's, like, <laughs> lost all sense of being. And it's like, th- this is, you were told this, like, two chapters ago. Like, I, I guess it wasn't, like, <laughs> a trade. She didn't know it was going to be a trade, but, like... Yeah, I, I mean, a trait is better than being killed. Like, yeah, yeah. that scene, that was a little, a little hard um, for me to grasp, I guess. I know, but okay, I gotta say, I know we love to rat on Kamaru because he's <laughs> so frustrating, but mm-hmm. I will say that here we go. Here's my time to shine, baby, with why I like Kamaru better than Makoto as a protagonist. Okay. And it is because. Though I despise her in the beginning of this game, oh my god, I cannot stand her. Like, she's worse than Makoto, I know, dare I say it, like, worse than Makoto. Um, It's because she changes her character. There is a a shift. She overcomes challenges within her mind, and she gets better. Yeah, maybe she's, like, mediocre after, but, like, you know, she was so much worse before, and now she has, like, a character (laughs) arc. You know what I mean? So, the, the... Becoming better. So I'm sorry, this is a tangent for a second, but I'm reading Northanger Abbey. And there's a quote where they're talking about how the main character has grown up and she was kind of tomboyish and ugly when she was little, but now she's like pretty decent looking. And most people that look at her, like if they had known her in the past would be like, wow, she's attractive because they saw what she used to look like. Whereas like people who would see her now, like would look at her and be like, oh, she's mediocre looking. That's how I feel about Kamaru. Like, she's so much better than she used to be that I can't help but be like, okay, yes, she's good. Like, thank God you're better than you used to be. Whereas, like, if I just looked at her in the second half of the game, I'd be like, oh, God, (laughs) fine, whatever, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So that's why I like her better is there's an arc there. I still don't like her. I actually wrote down, Kamaru actually makes a decision. Whoa! With like 12 H's. <laughs> but at yeah. least, Marin, at least she's self-aware. Okay, but later, she calls she calls Haiji attractive for being a pedophile. Okay, yeah, oh that, God, I'm a pedophile, that and she's like... horrible. She's like, at least he admits it. That's attractive. And yeah, I was no, like... That- that not no not attractive, I, I lost all respect for her in that moment oh my like that <laughs> yeah that, that was that was horrible yeah we got maddie on board <laughs> okay but i will say that um in the moment in this moment with nagito and toko and genocide jack and all those things i did um have some respect for kamaru in these moments not only from like the 
the moment when she stops genocide jack from killing nagito i really had to give her props for that and then also um like like kind of the way she talks her down from it but then also um deciding to stay and not leave the city for toko her newfound friend i had mad respect but yeah then later on that was completely ruined when she said that about haiji i was like forget it kamaru i can't stand you anymore no 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 <laughs> god anyway <laughs> yeah but um what really 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 like touched my heart was and i think i i don't think i was surprised by this but i still was really like it just makes me happy was how um toko slash genocide jack like purposefully lost the fight against kamaru so that she could let her leave like toko she was not trying to keep kamaru there she was not really trying to uphold her end of the deal i mean we know how much she cares about byakuya but she was trying to let kamaru leave i was just like she actually does care about her like and then they are friends and it's cute and toko finally you know has like a good wholesome friend that she deserves and yeah kind of along the lines of their friendship the whole toki thing that was the worst I wanted thing I've to ever vomit. <laughs> I, I have a note that literally says Toki disgusting. <laughs> My note says Toki is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Caroline, back to our <laughs> back, back to, to the, the roast. roast. Maddie's gonna be like, I thought it was cute. <laughs> and we're like, no. <laughs> so you guys hate it as much as Toko hated it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Toko's like vomiting, and I was like, "Yeah." Right. Toko's like, "I must, mode. I must endure the friendship." <laughs> oh my god! No, that was so relatable. That was funny. That was a very funny moment. I also have my Toko is me segment here. Uh, so this whole like being like, "Oh, if I must spend time with you, God, like if I must have a nickname, okay, fine, like I, I, friendship." Like, ugh. like I felt that on a spiritual level. <laughs> so about the conversation with Nagito, he says, um, since I've planned this game, I'd like to see it finished, which is really interesting because, you know, I, I mean, I at least personally lived under the assumption that this was the Warriors of Hope their game and he's saying that it's his game like uh and you know we know nagito from from the other games and his whole purpose is always hope it's always to create hope and so i'm just not really sure at this point why he planned this game because i don't think it's really caused any hope you know like you have to wonder what what he has planned yeah i mean is this this is despair nagito technically right True, true but he's still like he says he hates junko he does you know uh and like he hates makoto because he didn't get to see junko's end you know like yeah so he's still kind of fighting for hope but it might not be a good hope you know like yeah. earlier nagisa says junko big sis junko gave us hope and so it might be something along those lines where it's like a evil hope yeah um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting. I wasn't expecting him to to be the like mastermind or whatever of of this game. Yeah, that is true. You know, related to that, he kind of he talks and he talk, he talks a little bit about like our human obsession with underdog stories. I think in his mind, it's kind of he is like puppeting this story, and he wants to be the one to create the ultimate hope, which is the underdog rising forth. So yes, he's still rooting for hope, but he wants it to be in his way. I think that's kind of like he wants to create it. Whereas in the second game, it's more like, yeah, man, like just use me, man. It's, it's all good. You know, this is like the despair Nagito might be like, I want to create the hope. Like I want to be the Makoto Naegi, you know, of this game or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah definitely. Or, oh my god, so isn't, like, part of the underdog complex how humans love to see the winning team lose? Like, the one that we're all, like, rooting mm -hmm. for? Well, maybe he also is rooting for that despair, like, of, like, the team, like, the, like the winning team that he's on losing, and he's, like, is seeking that because, like, this is despair Nagito, so he's, like, wants to feel that. I'm just throwing that in the ring. Yeah, we also find out that 
um, Monica asked Nagito to bring back uh, Kamaru. So Monica is in on this scheme with Nagito, which that shocked me too, because like Monica's out here saying like, like I want to be the next reincarnate of like Junko and Ashima, mm-hmm. um, who is despair, but she despair is working with Nagito, who is like despair's version of hope. And like, oh it's just so chaotic and I I kind of love this game because like everyone's to blame for some reason you know it's 60 40 on the kids all over again (laughs) (laughs) it's like 33 33 33 I'm like all of the girls (laughs) but yeah I I just love that it's so chaotic I don't know who to blame next (laughs) yeah there is a lot of complexity to appreciate and that I think makes things more interesting for sure. Um, So this is like a short little note. It's just something that I really thought was very cool. Um, It's just like this moment when, you know, you are like, we get to fight genocide Jack and we're like, she kind of, you know, lets us win and, you know, then tries to kill Nagito and Kamara stops her and whatever. I just thought it was very cool to see how Toko and genocide Jack kind of start to merge a little bit. Because, you know, we see a little bit of, like, memory that's maintained between the Switch. So, like, while she's Genocide Jack, um, Kamaru calls her her friend. And then she switches back to Toko, and Toko remembers Kamaru calling her her friend. And because, you know, previously we've learned they don't share memories, but this, in this case they kind of did a little bit. Well, they so they share feelings, which yeah. I think is a very important distinction. Like, Toko could know that Kamaru called her a friend because... She it's like a feeling of like feels. yeah gotcha so you think it might not necessarily be like a memory of something she said to her you think it's it's just the fact that they have the feelings yeah gotcha interesting because i didn't really see it that way i thought like it might have been like just a hint of maybe a tiny thing that toko remembered um and so i just thought it was interesting to consider the possibility that there might be a little more overlap happening between um the minds of Genocide Jack and Toko. But it's also kind of cool to see how they worked together, even between switching, like in fighting Kamaru and purposefully letting her lose. Like they both had the same objective. They both had the same feelings leading them to the same objective, even though they didn't explicitly, they weren't explicitly aware of what was going on. I just thought it was a very, it was just a very cool interaction between the two sides of of Toko that I don't think we've seen anything really quite like that up to this point. For sure. I kind of love the idea of it not being a memory because I think a lot of this game Caroline mentioned it I think in chapter one where Caroline you said like each chapter is growth for the protagonist in some form or another and Toko I think is the character who has been through a similar level of trauma and yet she has been able to overcome it in more of a positive way and this chapter to me was her showing people like through her ability to work side by side with genocide jack but not with genocide jack in order to accomplish something like she's not being overcome by her trauma she's like she's working through it and she's healing you know and like i don't know i i really like the idea of her like of them being two different people who can like kind of see eye to eye and to put my two cents in the ring about this whole feelings versus memory thing i there also this is going to be the artist in me speaking but there is such such beauty in things you can't explain through like words or memory that you just feel it and and the magic is there that that like the fact that like that level of feeling can trigger like certain emotions in the brain to like come to conclusions of what may have happened is like freaking amazing like some of the best art you don't it's not doesn't make sense logically but you feel it and it's beautiful and that's why you love it like I would guarantee that most people's like favorite movie of all time probably isn't the most critically acclaimed movie but it's because it triggers something that isn't explainable um so that's kind of why I also am pro feelings anti-memory <laughs> no very well said very well said yeah all right guys we gotta know wait hold on what do we want to know how much do you hate hygiene <laughs> <laughs> what's On your most scale. recent roast of uh, Kamaru are you all interested in learning a little bit more about the archetypes 
for Dong and Rumpa characters, well, we have a bonus episode out on our Patreon about all 12 Jungian archetypes, so definitely check that out. The lowest tier is just $2 a month, and you get an episode every week that we are not posting on Apple and Spotify, so it is a lit time. If you like what you're hearing today, make sure you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to us, and it's a great way to support the podcast. And if you have questions for us to be featured on the finale episode of our podcast, make sure you leave your question at anchor.fm. We love getting your voice messages. They always make our day. We get so excited. So it's a great time. And yeah, folks, we'll be right back after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, everybody. Caroline here with a pretty exciting announcement. So I, separate from the other Ultra Hope girls, am offering some online virtual classes in things such as writing, because, you know, I'm the ultimate literary girl, and performing, and also some clubs and classes virtually via my own school, which I founded, called The Spilling Ink School. You can check that out at thespillinginkschool.com. I'm offering tutoring and college essays. I'm offering, you know, piano classes and all that jazz. So definitely check it out. It's a good time. And I will also be offering some clubs and classes that are Danganronpa related via OutSchool. So I'll keep the links all in the description. They are for people under 18, so ask your parents before checking it out. But yeah, I'm excited to potentially have some listeners in my classes, and I wanted to let you know that that's going on. So thanks so much in advance for checking it out, and I look forward to teaching some of you. So as a quick shout out to the creators of Danganronpa, again, how could I not? When they're walking around uh, the subway station, Kamaru says, the ceiling's not going to fall in again, right? And Toko says, I won't allow a plot repeat. Like, you know, we're above that, which is like just another like poking fun (laughs) at their own game thing. And then the floor caves in. Like they were like, we're not going to make the ceiling fall. No, no, (laughs) we'll make the floor fall. (laughs) I just love that. That's That's, so clever. You're right. Nagisa. And Monica. I mean, well, uh, yeah, let's chat about it. Yeah, Monica is basically like, yeah, bro. uh, So you you think that this is about one thing, but it's it's like literally not, man. Like, come on, we all knew. Like, Nagisa, you're smart. Like, you and he knew. He did know. He was like, this is getting fishy out here. Um, I thought it was this scene is so bizarre to me, and I was trying to like kind of think about it because this whole like interaction with them and how like she kisses him. I was like, what the heck is going on? I had two ideas. One, could be an allusion to the Bible where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Ooh. You know, um, like it could be that with Monica betraying Nagisa in, in a way. Um, it could also be the other way around though, because if Nagisa's betraying Monica, but ends up going along with her plan. So, okay. This is a conversation that happens in Jesus Christ Superstar a little bit, where Judas, like, he's like, God, why did you put me in this position to be the one to betray Jesus? Like, why is this my fate? And in a way, it's like Nagi says, like, submitting to the fate that has already been written for him by, like, Monica, you know. Anyway, that's kind of a convoluted idea. But yeah, like, interesting thing to think. But also, there is a level in here of her, like, trying to, like, come on to him. I was, like, confused about what the heck was going on with that. I think she's just trying to, I think she knows that he, like, has a crush on her, and she's just trying to, like, manipulate him. Okay. And he's yeah. trying to hold hold it over his head. Yeah, it was a very weird scene. I think, I mean, he's never, it's implied that he's never received love. You know, like he's tried to do all this stuff and he's never really gotten appreciation for it. You know, if he just does something else, he'll get appreciation. And we see that Monica is a master manipulator, you know, and I think that 
potentially like we see throughout the like end of this chapter that he's looking for more expectations he needs you know he needs more tasks he needs more jobs he's not really sure where to go and so I think her kind of kissing him like giving him that love that he's been searching for she's not like she's not letting him chase something she's saying like you don't have any tasks to do now I'm taking that from you by giving you what you want you know so it's like this kind of weird play um like when she with Katoko when she said her trigger word in order to kind of break her back down she took away everything Nagisa had been like trying to do on his own you know that is yeah canon now. It was so weird. <laughs> that is like the weirdest scene and he, he's like slapping her yeah, over gosh. and over and she doesn't care and I I was watching and I, my jaw was just to the floor. I was like oh, stop like this it is horrible. Yeah. yeah. Made me a little uncomfy. I was like I do not know what is going on here. I don't know why. And also now we know kind of that Monica is our ultimate foe at the moment pretty much confirmed when she was like i'm gonna be junko's successor i said "Uh (laughs) uh-oh okay you're the real bad guy (laughs) yeah so uh my first note uh, from back in base is just this whole kind of conflict with shirakuma um and shirakuma uh using himself as a bomb to explode uh the the hole in the wall or whatever that was a very interesting thing to me i felt like if you asked me what one thing from this game you could take out and have no repercussions to the plot it would be this because like just don't have the hole in the wall and then like you you don't (laughs) need to explode the bear but like I will say I kind of liked the symbolism of Shirakuma's sacrifice to Kamaru's sacrifice because like Kamaru you know like for this whole game has been like it's all about me where and then like sacrifices uh, her own safety in order to try and save herself Toko and Byakuya so more people and Shirakuma kind of felt similarly of sacrificing himself in order to save more people at the base so I liked that but um, yeah that was kind of my first I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on on Shirakuma's sacrifice but but you guys if we didn't have this moment uh where Shirakuma explodes we wouldn't have Toko getting yeeted part two okay (laughs) so like that was the most (laughs) essential part of that whole encounter (laughs) amen I take it back (laughs) it's needed (laughs) I I had that same note too I was like Toko gets thrown into the air in an explosion for the second time um (laughs) absolutely but I also my only really thought about Shirakuma's sacrifice was that like it didn't really have that much of an impact on me clearly it has an impact on Kamaru which for me I'm just like okay like cool we can explode the bear and save people (laughs) maybe that's like way too callous but like I never particularly cared for Shirakuma I never even really trusted him and I guess at this point it's like okay he you know he's good he's sacrificing himself for the adults like I think it's you know he's kind of established himself as good but I still was just kind of like eh. yep eh. <laughs> I was like oh all right R.I.P. inanimate object I, I feel like I have no soul sometimes I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> was like but like alter ego we are so sad when alter ego goes yeah sad yeah. when Shirakuma goes so is it the exterior that we are then like throwing aside potentially you know what I mean I'm just saying like if Shirakuma looks like Chihiro, would we be like, oh, I don't know if I trust that that guy? Yeah, I mean, I tr- I didn't trust Shirakuma from the start, though, because of, like, their intentions. Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe the body did influence me. Yeah, but I, I just... None I, of us are immune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. You are not immune to propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, this is going to be a shocking moment. Are you ready? Do you like Kamara's speech, Marin? Yeah. Wait, wow. Okay, my next line says I actually liked Kamara's speech, believe it or not. (laughs) 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 Wow, I guess you're not going to be shocked. All right. Um, Yeah. Well, it's not that. I just, when you said that, I was like. Yeah, it was like at first when she started and she's like, I just, I want to say, I, oh no, what am I doing? I how do I speak? And Toko's like, just speak. And she's like, ah, (laughs) I was like, this is going to be horrible. But then like, when she actually started speaking, I was like, 
you know, you say like, I'm a normal girl. I can't do anything all the time. But like, this is the only time where I actually felt like it achieved something by saying that, you know, like I could see how her speech would motivate people. And I was like, cool. Yeah. And then she said the pedophile thing. So, you know, you went some yeah, years. I mean, yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, here's the thing with this speech, though, is it's like, this is shows her character change. Like, at least she's aware she was annoying before, you know, like, yeah. I kind of agree with uh, you, Marin. I was like, okay, like I, some respect, you know, for this speech. I like, I think it's, um, I think it's very honest, you know, it's like, at first I'm kind of like, oh my God, this is so cheesy. Like the, it's like a movie. They're like, ah, oh, yes, I'm going to rally the people, blah, blah, blah. But it's also kind of an acknowledgement that it is a little bit cheesy and like, hey, it, it can still have a positive impact. I mean, when she says, so I have a quote from Kamaru's speech, like the, I think the most impactful part of it for me was when she says, hey, how much longer are you going to just be another victim? You're normal. You're weak. How much longer are you going to use those damn excuses? You're happy to just be a victim and ignore everything around you. Are you really okay with that, you coward? And that, she says that that is what she wishes she could have said to her former self. But I also had the thought that like, that's pretty much exactly what Toko had been saying to her the whole time. And so I have to wonder if like, you know, I have to give Toko some props here too, because I think that this is a huge example of how much of an impact Toko has had on her and her character development. I do. They're great. They're good, like friends, I think. Yeah, they work well together. I think they're good for each other. Right. I think they help each other grow. Yeah, I 100% agree. After that speech, when you go and talk to all the people and you talk to Shirakuma's head. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Right of Shirakuma's head sent me. Like, I cannot stop laughing. It's like, like wires out of it. I was like, <laughs> I could not believe. Oh, wow. Also, adult V is Jason. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every chapter we're like, adult L, there he is. <laughs> My next note is about... um Haiji is now like, all right, ladies, thanks for that inspirational speech. Let's go get my secret weapon. Like, what the hell? I'm sorry. I just like this whole game. Is such a... Okay. Yeah. I just don't like him. And he was like, he was like, if I were behind all of this, why would I make Monokuma break my arm? And that to me was the most suspicious thing he said because I'm out here thinking I already thought the arm was suspicious okay already (laughs) thought that however I'm thinking it's like slashed or something you know like how monokumas have been attacking people this whole time but no no a monokuma broke his arm a monokuma (laughs) decided to snap Snap it it. (laughs) not in any way we've seen a monokuma attack before and he's like do you think i asked him for that i was like yes i now i think you asked him for it (laughs) oh man that guy i just well okay so i have a note about um him like he says he has a trump card which is so interesting because a trump card is what you call the major arcana in tarot which i was like hello queens i mean it also has meanings in like um in like card games too it means like a card that holds more value but i wanted to focus on the tarot part because his brain has a lot of information so um no please go that god okay brain is large my brain wrinkly wrinkle brain (laughs) wrinkly and large just for a little summary for folks who are not familiar with like the basic basics of um like tarot and like how it's put together there's the major arcana and the minor arcana the minor arcana are full i have four suits just like a deck of cards and there are like four different symbols but i'll be talking about the major arcana um today which uh there are 21 numbered cards and one unnumbered card which is called the the fool that's the card that's unnumbered and the major arcana has a specific order obviously they're numbered one to 21 and the order is supposed to account for the fool, the non-number card, the fool's journey. And so that's like an important part about like reading those cards is like knowing where in the num- numerology that card sits um, because of that. And when a major arcana shows up in a reading, it usually means like that is like the overview, overarching theme of the entire reading. So everything comes back to that one card, which I think is really interesting. Um 
And I thought it was very interesting because the major arcana or the trump card is a giant, literal giant monokuma, which is like a conglomerate of everything that has made up the entirety of their despair so far in this entire game, which made me even more sus of Haiji. I was like, sir, maids, okay, no. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> nice try, man. Okay. But yeah, I just thought that was kind of neat. And uh, yeah, tarot knowledge for my folks out there if you're interested in that. Yeah, very cool. neat. I have one more roast for Kamaru, and then Please. I have one more note. Nope, two more notes. Okay, let's start with the roast. All right, my my roast today for Kamaru, other than thinking that Haiji is attractive, is that she could not grasp the concept of two moms. Like, yeah. talk about heteronormative. That girl, she's like, Toko's like, I had two moms, and she's like, divorce? And she's like, no, two moms, and she's like, Mom and you dad. You mean dad? Buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, girl, yeah. like, oh yeah, that was kind of rude. <laughs> oh man, that was funny. Yeah. Um, I have a note about uh, like, let's just address the elephant in the room with Haiji for a sec, um, because yep. he says he prefers his girls young. Excuse me, I throw up everywhere, but Toko says that Haiji has a Lolita complex. Um, and I wanted to unpack this because we actually brought this up in an early ep- earlier episode and ended up cutting it because we just didn't know enough about it. But I did the research this time so I can actually talk about this topic. So the history behind Lolita and like what that means in different cultures. So the term Lolita was founded in Western culture in 1952 with the release of Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. I think is how you pronounce the last name. He's a Russian author. Um, when I say Western, I mean European and America, uh, which I think, yeah, cool. Um, and so that's a work of classic literature. A lot of people have heard about it. They probably know more about it within like pop culture rather than having read it because it's not read as much now because it is a little bit controversial, obviously, because it is about <laughs> a, a middle-aged man um, having a pedophilic obsession with a 12-year-old girl named Dolores, who he calls Lolita. So something that's important to note about this book and where, like how it is a foundation for a lot of these terms that I'll talk about later is the uh, perspective of the book is from the middle-aged man. There is no perspective from the child at all. And so all we're seeing is the sexualization of one party onto the other. And so it's, it's like the entire book is through the male gaze, which is a big part of like the studying of this book. Yeah, so basically suppressing the female voice in the novel. There, like, we, again, it's just, literally, we never hear her thoughts at all about anything. Um, so then we move on to 1970s in Japan, there's a Lolita fashion movement. The Lolita fashion is, uh, it's very cute. It's a very cute fashion. It's very feminine. Um, and it usually has like very old fashioned clothes that have like Western influence and also some like fairy tale influence. Um, highly recommend checking out. There's like a couple of YouTubers that do Lolita fashion and they're, it's so awesome. Um, and this fashion movement was made separate from this novel, but shares the same name you know, because in the 70s, they were looking to free themselves from this male gaze that has been like established within this work of literature. The big question is, so does the novel have anything to do with the Lolitas? Not directly, but there is the term lolicon, which is a Lolita complex in Japanese media, which does have something directly to do with the sexualization of young girls. And it is based off of the novel of the same, you know, Lolita, the novel. And that is a anime subset of like the anime genre. And it usually consists of young girls being dressed in sort of like erotic ways and sexualized is very wrong, not good. And similarly to the novel, we're viewing this, these anime tropes through the male gaze. So through men predatorily looking at women. Last point in this is that there is also the lolly like uh, anime character. And that is a um, specifically a character who is over the age of 18 that looks young. And in their, in sometimes in the anime, depending on the plot line, they are sexualized because they look young, which is problematic, but not always. So that's like something that is like kind of a mixed bag depends on what you're watching um so yeah that's my history lesson on lolita in 
Western culture and how it impacted Japanese culture. Woo-woo. But yeah, Lolita Complex, when Soko says that, it means he is sexualizing young girls. I mean, pretty much my main note about, well, I have a little, a few things to say afterwards, like some of my, my thoughts, but the, the first thing I wanted to like say about this revelation of, about Haiji is, um, it's just a, a question that I have that I, I mean, part of me, I just can't help but wonder why, like, why did they include that in the game? Why is Haiji canonically a pedophile? Why is that necessary for the plot? Why does it happen? I have a gut response, which is I think that the audi- that the writers wanted the audience to 100% dislike him because they, they didn't want any part of us to be like, well, it's a gray area, you know? Yeah, I think it also, it kind of points to Kamaru's like naivete because, you know, like we, we talked earlier, like roasted her about like liking that and seeing like, oh, like it's cool that he's honest about that, like, which is horrible. But I think it just kind of points again to the fact that she doesn't always know what she's talking about. She's not stupid, but like she is definitely developing as a person. And so like, yeah, I think it, it kind of points to that. But I agree. Like, I yeah, I think Caroline's right because I don't see a point otherwise to put him in or to put that in. I do think that one kind of theme that comes out to me um, now, but also throughout the previous chapters as well with like the kids and the abuse that they suffered and everything was like, you know, it's a cliche saying, but it's, it's, it's a real thing. Like if you see something, say something kind of like, because part of me was like, why didn't, I mean, Kamaro obviously is, you know, very problematic in the way she responded to it, but like both of them, I guess, Toko and Kamaro, like, why didn't they say anything in that instance? Why didn't they like say something to him? Be like, that's wrong. Like, that's disgusting. Or like, why are you, I don't know. Like part of me is just like that, but, but I, I feel like there is this theme of like, if there is somebody who is, who you know is a pedophile, if there is a kid that you know is being abused or something like that, or even like domestic abuse, it doesn't have to be a kid. Like if you know that something's going on, it's like, do something, you know what I mean? Like say something to someone, especially if it's child abuse, because the kids have no power to get themselves out of a situation like that. You know, you, you, you got to do something. You got to say something like you can't just be an innocent bystander or turn a blind eye because that's not innocent, you know? And I think that a lot of the, the themes from before, like, especially I think in Kotoko's like final boss battle, she said something along the lines of like, oh, well, if there are so many good people in the world, why didn't anyone come help me? You know what I mean? And it's like, it's horrible. Cause like people knew about it. People knew what was happening to her and they didn't do anything about it. And so I think it's just like, I think that's one of the core takeaways. It's like, if there is something like that going on that you are aware of, like speak up about it, get someone to help report it. If you need to like, just don't turn a blind eye. Toko does say stuff though. Yeah. I yeah. was going to say, I, I do want to defend Toko. I mean, Kamaru I, is, that's not defendable, you know? <laughs> um, But yeah, Toko does say like a couple times, she's like, like this is wrong or like you know i wanted someone to slap Haiji in the face <laughs> i know but like what would they have done he could have hurt either of them right so nagisa's robot i mentioned this earlier is called hannibal x and that is kind of generally canonically thought that that is about the character uh hannibal lecter who has been uh, portrayed in a lot of different things there's a tv series and a movie uh, which the movie is called Silence of the Lambs, very famous, um, world-renowned film. In the TV show, the character is basically a, a sociopath who helps law enforcement people to catch serial killers because he like can think like them. He understands like what their thought process is like. And so it's kind of an interesting take. Um, but then the movie version is this guy who kills people and then eats them. And so it's very disturbing. It is a horror film. But what's interesting about Hannibal Lecter uh, is that Anthony Hopkins, the actor who is like most closely identified with the playing the character, said that he played the character as like very sane, very still, not a very physical presence. Um, but he like he's all brain. He's he's no brawn, all brain. And the character Hannibal Lecter is very offended by like rudeness by people who don't have manners and like people who treat others with disrespect and throughout the battle throughout the final boss battle 
Nagisa says things like sit up straight like like basically like reprimands you for your manners throughout the battle which was I when I was like watching I was like what why is he saying these things and I think it's a direct reference to this Hannibal Lecter character uh but yeah I mean Nagisa is is all brain and no brawn as soon as he's exposed to the Monokumas he's like screaming and like you know like holding himself and so it's just kind of an interesting like that they uh an interesting choice that they picked the character who is like all brains and manners to represent him in battle um my note goes off of that actually because you know we every uh you know collect them all every chapter analysis episode i talk about the archetype associated with each warrior of hope and nagi says the sage which is the 10th Jungian archetype and it is called the sage sometimes i have to do i have to sort of be like oh yeah this one is also called this but like this one is the sage and i'll just like read off some uh some good factorunis here for you um they their goal is to use intelligence and analysis to understand the world and their biggest fear is being duped misled um, which I think is really interesting, especially since we see like Monica literally misleads him and that is his biggest fear, which might be why she he's like slapping her. But yeah, their talent is wisdom and intelligence. They uh, seek out information and knowledge, are self-reflective and understanding, and they have like an understanding thought process, which again, part of the reason why we see Marin mentioned the autobiography of Nagisa. He's like, what are we doing? Like, like all of, and he's like self-reflective and in that way, um, and we also see that he's willing to put aside his differences with uh, Kamaru and Toko to fulfill his own dream. Like he is wise enough to see past that. The sage, folks. The fact that he met Monica's expectations in his death was just tragic to a new level to me. Like I know. The irony of it is just like... Yeah. He finally <laughs> met someone's expectations through death possibly the only time in his life i felt sad for him i mean i felt sad for all of them but like this one felt almost finite like the others i've been like oh what what are they dead what but this one like yeah i mean it's hard to argue with that it i was sad too i think i think i i grieved for nagisa like i I didn't really feel that way about any of the other kids not jotaro what (laughs) (laughs) i felt bad for jatro i did i did feel bad but i didn't necessarily feel at least the first time playing the game i definitely did not feel um the same way as i did for nagisa who i i felt like genuinely sad for when he met his end right which like kind of like what caroline was saying this is the first kid we actually see die i mean like at the end you know you see kamaru is like we gotta go see if he's okay and haiji's like i'm the worst let's leave him to die and (laughs) you know so we don't really get confirmation he's dead but a giant robot fell on him and so like with the other kids it's like oh they're pulled away or katoko's crying on the ground or like you know so i I I agree. I think this is the first kid that we actually, like, a skull goes up into the air. Like, if they're not, how else can you say that he died? (laughs) I mean, maybe when the robot fell, maybe it felt like the eye hole of the robot fell, like, right onto Nagisa, and he was, like, scared. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I I agree with you. It, It felt, it felt very final. All right, for today, for Amended Bed, Wed, Behead, we are going to be picking between Nagisa, Haiji, and Shirakuma, and our choices today are going to be buy matching Crocs with them, become long-distance pen pals with them, and work together on a science fair project. I have my answer. I would want to buy matching Crocs with Shirakuma because I think he would be the most excited about the matching Crocs out of all of those characters. Um, And I would also get excited about the matching Crocs and also Shirakuma's voice by Amanda Slee Miller. um, And we would be best friends. So rad. Um, And then we have Nagisa. I would choose to do the science fair project with, obviously. I feel like that's like like I would have to do none of the work. Um, I would put together the beautiful poster board and like, you know, write up the research that he researched. Like I'll make it look nice, but like, you know, I, I don't have to do like the, the root, which is great. Cause I do not like science very much. I have a tough time with science. Um, and then the pen pal one, I would do hi G because I could just ignore all his letters and never write him back. And I'd never have to see him. amazing um i have a slightly different slightly different answers i could go next if you want me to 
Um, I was going to say that I would buy the matching Crocs with Hygie because it would be like a one and done thing. And then I could just throw the shoes away and like never think about it again. Um, Wait, oh my God. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm this is the only character anyway. we can like, like hate, but like no one will hate us for hating. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. I think I would, yeah, I would also do the science fair um, project with Nagisa because he would be a great science fair project partner to work with. He's smart. He, um, you know, he's low ultimate social studies, but he said that he's like very good with a lot of academic areas. And um, if he likes science and academic things as much as I do, we could bond over that and we could, you know, think of something really interesting to do and get some, some good research. And we'd like probably win an award because he's such a genius and yeah. And then I would be long distance pen pals with Shirakuma I feel like that'd be like solidly okay. Like I don't I don't think Shirakuma would have that many like many interesting things to say. Like but whatever, you know, I could just like talk about my life, be like here's what's going on, like and I feel like he'd be like, "Oh yeah, like tell me about your life." I'd be like, "Okay." <laughs> and it would just be like a chill low stakes thing. I also have a different answer. So, um I would be pen pals with Nagisa be like you know that that little dude needs some some therapy and while I am not qualified to give it uh you know maybe just writing back and forth would give him a little mental reprieve you know so yeah I would get matching crocs with shirakuma I completely agree with you Caroline the the excitement that would be found in that would just wow I'd never get rid of the crocs and then for science fair, uh, I would do science fair with Haiji because that would imply that Haiji is back in school, and boy, does he have a lot to learn, if I may uh, say so myself. Yeah, you could just, like, um, make him do all the work. Be like, you suck. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to help you. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, my arm. I'd be like, be like I don't care. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, boo-hoo, Haiji. Okay. The Show me the broke broken phone. Okay. You and your fake broken arm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you, everyone, for coming and listening today to Ultra Hope Girls. We hope that you enjoyed it. Make sure you check out us on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Amino, Anchor, everywhere leave us a voice message on anchor and we may feature your voice in a future episode we have a patreon if you want access to bonus episodes every other week then make sure you join patreon the lowest amount is two dollars per month and we'd love to see you there love to to talk to you get to know you more and that's all from us this week but we will see you next time with even more danganronpa content bye, bye. bye.